Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Upstream from concerns about policy, we enter the realm of ethics. That is where we'll spend today's podcast. My guest is Stephanie Hare, the author of Technology is Not Neutral, A Short Guide to Technology Ethics, published on February 22nd in London Publishing Partnership's Perspective Series. The book was edited by Diane Coyle. Stephanie is a researcher and broadcaster with an expertise in technology, politics, and history. As part of the BBC Expert Women program, she often shares her insights on television and radio. She's been a technology consultant and an academic, earning a PhD in Theory and History of International Relations from the London School of Economics and Political Science. Commenting on the publication of the book, Dr. Ramon Chowdhury, Director of Machine Learning Ethics, Transparency, and Accountability at Twitter, said that, Technology is not neutral is a clear-eyed look into the real world and immediate implications of technological systems. The book provides a cautious but optimistic view of the potential for humankind to create responsive and responsible technology, using an interdisciplinary focus that is both engaging and empowering to the reader. I spoke to Stephanie earlier this month about some of the key ideas in the book. My name is Stephanie Hare, and I am the author of a book called Technology is Not Neutral, A Short Guide to Technology Ethics. So Stephanie, early in the book, you say that this is the book you wish you had uh, earlier in your career. Why? Why did you write this book? Well, when I started working in technology right at the turn of the century in the year 2000, back in the Jurassic age, I wasn't given anything that covered technology ethics Um, at all. In fact, I was just thrown into coding, which I really enjoyed and, you know, was indoctrinated with the view that engineers are God and the rest of us just serve them. Um, We weren't given any guidance or even just ways of thinking about data or data sets and how they're created and how they can be used and abused. There was no real discussion of how technology might have you know intended as well as unintended consequences in society we were just solving problems and we were building and we were designing and it was the height of the dot-com era and i grew up in the united states but i started my technology career here in london where i'm talking to you from today and it was just really you know technology was about money you know it's it's a difficult world to describe for people who weren't you know, alive and working back then, but it was this time of incredible optimism before the attacks of September 11, before the pandemic was anything more than a science fiction uh, nightmare scenario rather than a daily reality. And so, you know, I was very young in my 20s, newly, newly fresh graduate, and kind of just thrown into these positions of responsibility without being invited to think about what that responsibility really entailed. And that to me now, knowing what I know now many years later, is vaguely terrifying. And I wanted to address the younger people out there today who are perhaps in high school or university or junior college, um, community college, or other ways, other pathways into working with technology as much as in it, to say, you know, (laughs) I feel for you. And I wrote this book with you in mind as well. This isn't just for executives or experts. It's for ordinary people. And it's definitely for the next generation who I hope to be in dialogue with. They can tell me how I got everything wrong. 
And you do note that there are now a professional class of ethicists, of tech ethicists, data ethicists, uh, others that are essentially doing this job for a living. Yeah, that was one of the things that I had sort of as a hypothesis starting with the book a few years ago when I began this project. And it was really fascinating to see it confirmed because I put out a notice that I was starting this book in 2019 on Twitter and on LinkedIn. And it was on my little website that you know two people visit when it was there. And it was amazing to me how many people reached out and asked me to come and talk to their organization. So you know, even before I had something to say, people were saying, we, we want to know what you're thinking about because we're thinking about it too. Here's how we're doing it. And what was striking was the diversity of organizations, be it in the government, be it in the private sector, um, you know, be it young students who are asking me to come to talk to them. And it wasn't just engineering students. It was also in the social sciences and humanities and design, um, like the Royal College of Art, as well as, you know, your more classically trained computer scientists were interested. It was weapons makers. It was one of the world's biggest toy makers. It was the police. So it was just fascinating to see the diversity of people thinking about it, but also sort of the the hierarchy, if you will, of people thinking about it. So it might be, you know, a junior analyst or a junior engineer, or it could be the board. <laughs> Everybody in between so the spectrum, you could build the matrix, if you will. And I did, um, of who was thinking about this was mad. And then I just started populating and I had a little scrapbook where I would find job adverts when people would advertise for, you know, an AI ethicist or the Department of Defense wanted to hire an ethicist to help think about the ethics of warfare. Now, some people will just automatically criticize that and say it's a contradiction in terms, but I wanted to be as as open-minded as I could in the research stage to be like, okay, what's the DOD doing with an ethicist? What's the Metropolitan Police doing with an ethicist? Why am I hearing from a fashion company wanting to talk about data ethics. This is really interesting. Something's happening out there. So the book is called Technology is Not Neutral, but you actually do lay out the debate over whether technology is neutral. And you know, presumably there are many people in the world who do still hold this idea that perhaps um, you know, technology itself uh, or underlying science of technology doesn't have a, a particular valence. Um, it's how people use the technology. What do you make of that argument? You lay that out here in, I think, a helpful way. Yeah, I love that argument. I had to think about it myself throughout the entire writing of the book. And in fact, I only titled the book a few months ago because I decided I really had to just you know, get off the fence. Um, it can get really annoying, I find, as a, as a reader or as a listener to have somebody who won't get off the fence and they just want to present all sides. And it's like, that's very well and good. But as anyone who builds technology can tell you, eventually you have to build something. You, know, you can't just say it's complicated, as Facebook might say. You have to decide. So we lay out the debate in the first chapter. And that is basically like, imagine two teams. You know, If you want to create a picture in your mind, you've got team technology is neutral and team technology is not neutral. And I populated those teams with equal numbers of some of the most interesting thinkers and you know, doers, actors, if you will, in our global society on technology. So they might be academics, but they might also be CEOs or billionaire investors, um, people, people who are interesting and who had a really strong view. You know, I didn't want anyone who was like, well, it's a bit this, it's a bit that. And I wanted people who were really clear in their minds because I thought we could learn from the extremes. So we had a bunch of people saying, technology is neutral. 
um, I think it was Gary Kasparov was like talking about AI ethics or ethical AI is like talking about ethical electricity. You know, it's not possible. It's, just, it's obviously just neutral. Um, and you had a whole crew of other people who were saying, are you kidding me? Technology is anything but neutral. Like every single part of what we design is embedded with ethics. And then there's even the question of like, take a step back. Who is we? Who's the we that's designing it? From what position are we doing that? And then who's being affected by it? Who benefits? Who's harmed? All that stuff. So they built out a picture of complexity. So that chapter really lays it out. And my goal with that isn't to tell you what I think, although you get the you get the answer from the book title. Um, I you know I worked the I wrote the chapter to kind of come up with my own answer, but I'm also putting it out there so that you, the reader or listener, will come up with your own answer, and it might be different from mine. And we're going to have a really interesting chat about that. You also try to define the idea of, you know, maybe back to the question of, of what is we, what are humans, um, what is the, the substrate on which we're applying technology or we're applying these ethical concerns. Um, and you talk about the idea that we are essentially data in a way, or that, you know, our experience is, is made up of data. I, I think you have kind of maybe a bigger idea about what that means than maybe we might generally think of when we think of rows of, of spreadsheets or you know, uh, databases on, on that level. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so whenever we talk about um, technology and you know, digital in particular, it's just really sort of classic now to see lots of like a black screen with green glow in the dark numbers that say zero and one. And we think of data as that. We might think of it as like our social media profile that has been hacked a million times or gets stolen by third-party actors. But I wanted to go much broader. And because I trained in the liberal arts and sciences, um, I've worked in technology for most of my career, but I have this sort of separate second life as a historian and uh, thinker in that space, which is a totally different space. And so I read really widely and I was kind of throwing every ingredient I had into the pot. And I came away thinking this question of we are data almost as though I could imagine different academic disciplines in the same room having that chat. So from the point of view of a physicist, you know, we are a set number of elements. You know, so if you ask a physicist, what do we mean by the question, we are data, they'll break it down for you and be like, we are the stuff of stars. And um, Professor Lord Martin Rees here in the United Kingdom, the Astronomer Royal, talks about that in his book on the in the future of humanity. And he writes it so beautifully that I, I wanted to quote him to be like, you know, this is a physicist view of what humans and life, all of us, are in terms of data. They would express it through the periodic table of elements. And then if you asked, you know, chemists and biologists, what, what does it mean to say we are data? They're going to break it down to our molecular structure or like the biological proce- you know, processes. So they'll be like, well, you know, the mother has the egg and the dad has the sperm and they form this thing and it becomes a human, you know, nine months later out pops the baby and that baby has its own genetic code. And they would express the question of who, who I am or who you are as a question of genetic code right? And they can break that code and break it down. And incredible research has been done on that. So they would have a totally different answer, though linked to the physicist. And then we enter into the world that I have spent more time in, always dialoguing with our friends in hard sciences, but I'm more comfortable and have been trained in the humanities, liberal arts, and social sciences domain. And 
they would obviously respect the earlier views that I've just outlined, but they would also be like, oh, but it's so much more. It's, it's about your social relationships. You know, no man is an island. <laughs> the metaphysics poet John Donne said, you know, we are all connected. I'm not just, um, you know, this set of elements or this biological chemical processes. I'm also, I'm a you know, middle child and I've got two parents and I've got two siblings and I might have a partner and I've got all these friends and my professional networks and I can map them out long before social you know, media sites were mapping out people's networks. You know, historians were doing it, anthropologists and sociologists were doing it. So they would view us really differently. So you take all of the things I've just given you, all of those different voices, if you will, and then bring someone from computer science into the room <laughs> and they'll take it and be like, awesome. We can do so much with all of these things. I can crunch you along all of those accesses or um, just one and we can narrow it down and we can model it for you in ways that will blow your mind. And then the more data you give us about who you're connected to, your shopping habits and how you vote and where you travel and how many pictures you've posted of yourself online, um, you know, your unencrypted data, we can pretty much know you better than most people in your family, your friends, and possibly even yourself. And I think when you take a step back and look at that, that question of what does it mean we are all data is mind-blowing. And I wanted to get all of those voices in to kind of set the tone for the rest of the book, which is um, very promiscuous in the sense that it, it just, I interview everybody, I'm talking to everybody, and I'm reading everybody because I think technology has to be about all humans. And this leads you to a set of epistemological questions about how we think about the role of, of machines, how we think about the role of uh, those computer scientists in, in the existence that we have, our understanding of this existence. Yeah. So the whole thing of like, why are we asking the question, is technology neutral? Because like sometimes that can just feel like a debate between tech people or tech nerds or people who just want to have an argument on Twitter of which there is no shortage. But I wanted to ask it from like a, what can I do with the answer to this question? So if you can decide if technology is neutral or not, you can start to have some really interesting conversations about who is responsible, who can be held accountable, who is liable. And that matters because like now we're starting to get to the questions of money and lawsuits and power and, you know, the law, which I think is really interesting. It suddenly makes something that might be really abstract for people, either on a technical level or a philosophical level. Now we all, we all get it. We're like, okay, this is legal or it's not. Um, and what's my role if I'm building this technology or if I'm investing in it, or if I'm failing to regulate it, you know, and people get hurt by it. What's, what's my responsibility here and what is yours? <laughs> so I wanted to answer that. And I thought, okay, well, let's take a step back. We have to look at this question of like, where does responsibility enter the equation, the discussion? And the way I was looking at that was this question of intelligence, because we often look at like, you know, can a child be held accountable? Is a child responsible for its actions? And there's, you know, a whole body of law that looks at, you know, child crime. There's also animals, you know, so I was looking at my friend's pet and being like, you know, can that pet be held liable for something? And there's actually law about domestic animals, be it your wildlife your, or your cattle or livestock versus your pets versus if a wild bear walks onto your land and, you know, mauls someone to death, can, it, you, know, can you be held liable? Is the bear liable? Like there's law for that. So we do this with living things, and I wanted to make the parallel, and I'm sure you can see where I'm going with this, of, okay, what is our view with animals, 
and humans on this question of intelligence and responsibility and decision-making, we have to get the, the real world thinking in everybody's head and get us all on the same page so that we can then build to the next part, which is machines. So the software, the robots, the people that code the software and the robots, how it's used, all of that stuff. Before we can have the big discussions about tech, there's actually quite a lot we can learn just from how we think about these questions with living objects. You have multiple, I guess, foci in the book around COVID-19 apps and uh, other types of technologies that are out in the world. And you're able to apply this you know, philosophical framework, I guess, in multiple ways and towards multiple technology applications. But one in particular is, is facial recognition technology. Mm-hmm which of course is you know, highly controversial and in democracies across the world being applied in various ways and in some places with abandon and in other places with great care. Why is facial recognition one of the handful of technologies you chose here? So when I started the book, which was the year before the pandemic, I had a different, a different plan. And the pandemic, when it hit in 2020 was, you know, early 2020. And we, we here in the UK, we were sort of locked in our houses for 15 weeks and it was pretty strict, um, except for the prime minister, obviously who was partying, but for the rest of us, we all obeyed the rules. And so I used that 15 weeks to completely have an existential crisis about this book where I just thought, you know, is there any point in even writing a book if the world is going to end in a pandemic ball of fire? And then I thought, well, we're probably going to get through it, actually, because humans are, are pretty resilient and also really innovative, in which case, what needs to change for the book? So one of the chapters is all about pandemic-inspired digital health technology. And I happened just through sheer luck to be living in the UK, where we did some really amazing stuff. So that entire chapter, I hope, is going to be interesting. And there is a facial recognition component, even to our pandemic tech. So if you want to have the NHS app on your phone, which is wonderful. When I showed it to my family in the United States, it just blew their minds. It's beautifully designed. It's got great user interface. It also has a facial verification component though, because you need it to make sure that you are indeed you and that you match your vaccine and booster references and all of your other medical data. And it's all part of a centralized system here in the United Kingdom. So you can imagine the cybersecurity concerns. All of that's being done through your face. So that's an example of face verification technology that has been used in the UK to great success. And I think most people would say that it has been a success. But when we look at other ways that facial verification technology, which is a branch, if you will, or a subset of facial recognition technology, the way that's been used here in the UK and indeed around the world is far, far more controversial. So I really wanted to just map it out. I've been, I've been sort of nibbling and even biting at facial recognition technology as a researcher for years. And I thought the pandemic is my chance. I'm going to just use the fact that I'm locked up to just write everything that I know about this, that I have to say, if I never were to speak about it again, if I don't make it through this experience, you know, before the vaccines, when things felt a bit more dramatic, um, at least I will pass on, you know, all my findings, which were disparate and all over the place into one package. And I will use the fact that I am American and British and I I study both countries so closely and also keep an eye on the EU. And then I wanted to weave in China. There are many more countries I could have covered on facial recognition, but that should be a book 
And fortunately, there's some other people uh, writing a book on facial recognition that'll be out next year with Oxford University Press. So I'm reassured that the baton has been passed and is indeed going. But I thought we've got enough here just with the UK, the United States, China, and the EU to give this topic a really good whack. And so that is what chapter three is. I mean, it does not pull its punches. And you apply a variety of these frameworks, these philosophical frameworks to the problem, metaphysics, uh, the kind of epistemological questions you know, on through to you know, even questions about particular applications of, of the technology. Boil it down for the listener. Well, that's a great way to open it, which is like, where the hell did this technology come from? And why is it suddenly literally in my face? <laughs> you know, it's everywhere. Um, and lots of people getting really hot up about it. And other people seem to be very relaxed. And you think, you know, what am I supposed to think about this? Um, I wanted to make that task as easy as possible for everybody. So the way that I structured it is, it is as follows. Imagine like a Swiss army knife that has six little tools. Um, you know, it might be a corkscrew and it might be a tweezers and a little... Um, knife and a little pair of scissors. So six little tools. And those six tools in my book are the six main branches of philosophy. Again, coming from the US where we don't necessarily study philosophy in high school, the way that they do in France, for instance, it's quite hardcore there. Um, here in the UK, we also don't. I was like, we don't have time to write a philosophy book. And I'm not sure any of us need that book. What we do need though, is to understand that philosophy is an incredible tool set for thinking that we can apply to any problem. So even if I didn't write about facial recognition technology, I could have applied this insane tool to any problem you want to throw at me. So that's pretty cool right there in terms of your, your value add. Philosophy is worth it just for that. So you get your six little tools within your Swiss army knife of philosophy, and you can apply it and break it down. So metaphysics is the first one. And that's just kind of like, what is reality? You know, What is facial recognition technology? Literally, what does it do? How does it work? And then epistemology is the next one. And that's like, well, how do we learn about it? Who's an expert? Who's a trusted authority? What are the sources of knowledge on facial recognition? And then, you know, and that could include all sorts of things that my book goes into and is like super user-friendly how it's broken down. It's not abstract at all. You can tell I'm from the Midwest. We <laughs> straight talking. Then there's logic, which is, you know, how do we know what we know about facial recognitions? Like, how do you test if facial recognition is accurate or not? And on whom? And like, what's the best product out there for facial recognition technology versus the ones that you should never use? You know, how do you know that? Like, how does a coder know that? But how does a lawmaker or a regulator know that? Right? Same question being asked by different people. Then there's the political philosophy little tool. And that one's really important because it's like, well, how does facial recognition technology affect power dynamics? You know, it started out really being used as, as a way it comes from the mugshot, you know, it comes from photography. So you have to, you know, first you have to go back into history and be like, okay, who invented cameras? Okay. Well, what did people use cameras for? And they were like, you know, literally people were taking selfies. I love, like, we're such a narcissistic species. Like, why don't we take a picture of ourselves? And so we have the picture of the first American selfie in the book, but then the French, cause that's my area of expertise is France. Um, they were like, what if we made a mugshot, you know, and we'll like take a picture from the front and the side, and then we'll write down, you know, the first descriptions of your hair color and your eye color. So they do all the things that we take for granted today, but I wanted to show in the book, you know, that didn't just come from nowhere. These things came from a context and the context was criminology, forensics, colonial administrations, so like where does the idea of fingerprinting people come from? It comes from the British in India. 
right? So like all of a sudden you're like, oh. Um, and also I should acknowledge there's a second fingerprinting system that comes from Argentina and it's still used in large parts of the Spanish speaking world today. So it's really fascinating to be like, who came up with this stuff and how do they use it? And it's always used to control. So it's to control along like colonial grounds, which obviously has, you know, racial discussions, dynamics of power in terms of empire, things that are really awkward in 2022, but that we want to be aware of in terms of the history history of this tech, because it's being used on us now, but it comes from then. So then you think, well, who's it affect in terms of politics? If it's inaccurate on some people more than others, based on, for instance, skin tone or gender or whether or not somebody's trans or their age, all of those things, you think, okay, well, who is it accurate on? <laughs> because being misidentified by the police has consequences, right? If you're in the United States, you've got cops who've got weapons. So you've got a really big problem there. And that is why a lot of the companies that make this technology are not selling to the police right now. It's too much of a risk. Over here in the UK, our police do not carry weapons as a matter of course, but it still has consequences to misidentify people of certain groups. So we have to look at the power. And then the next one's going to be aesthetics. And aesthetics is normally seen as like, what is beauty? What is art? So it seems like a weird thing to be in a tech book, but you can actually broaden out and be like, what is our experience? So when we talk about things like user experience, UX, or user interface, UI, we're talking about, you know, what does the technology look like and feel like? Like literally I'm holding up my iPhone right now and showing it to you on a Zoom. And you're thinking, I can't really see it very well because it's a two-dimensional, we're doing this as a video. Whereas if I showed you in 3D, if you were sitting next to me, you would be having a different experience because you could touch the phone and play with it and feel how much it weighs and be like, oh, wow, I like your cover and it's beautiful, right? So there's all the, all the questions about design choices and values. So it's really fascinating area, what makes somebody addicted to a device, right? Versus never want to use it. That device was so annoying, right? And we usually make those decisions as humans within one or two attempts or a very impatient species. So that's an entire branch of philosophy. And it has real world implications because if we make technology difficult or hard to use, if we make it hidden, so we can't see these cameras that are used on us, which is increasingly happening, it has all these ethical implications. So I wanted to throw those five little tools, those five branches of philosophy at the reader before we dive into ethics. And ethics is obviously the, the meat of the book. And it's what we're all here for, which is, you know, is facial recognition or any technology really a good thing or a bad thing? Those are going to be your, your two extremes on your, your axis of decision-making. And it could be anywhere in between, maybe it's 50 shades of gray, but you can't talk about ethics without even being aware of what those other branches of philosophy are. And in fact, it's a little bit of a trick chapter because by the time you're done and you get to the ethics section, hopefully just by laying out different aspects of this discussion for you, you're starting to have reactions as a reader to be like, wait, I don't, maybe I don't want this being used on me, or maybe I'm fine with that. Actually. I don't care that it was, you know, linked to pseudo, debunked pseudosciences in the 19th century. This is 2022. Like, let's move on. I don't know. Or I'm a police officer and I need this tech and you should hear how hard my job is. Like, I want to hear that person's point of view just as much as I want to hear the privacy advocate's point of view. And I lay it all out for the reader as much as possible. And you do, in fact, you know, depict lawmakers and uh, other individuals who are hosting testimony, they're, they're trying to dig into this question, uh, trying to understand, you know, you talk about the different uh, 
approaches to civil liberties that are present, you know, even different, perhaps uh, across different uh, bits of the United Kingdom. Where do you net out on this, on facial recognition? Uh, Do you ultimately come to a conclusion about the use of facial recognition technology and, and whether it can be ethically applied? So again, I am just as much as the next person, like wanting to just like chill out and, you know, watch Netflix. So I wanted to make it super easy. So I can tell you if you, if you buy the book or get it from your local library or borrow it from a friend and you just want to know, you know, what do I need to know about facial recognition? Just go to page 154 because on page 154, you will find a table and the table is labeled attention lawmakers, Facial recognition technology examples ranked by risk of harm and need for regulation. And I've ranked them from low to high. So for instance, I guarantee you every time I give a public talk on facial recognition, there's someone in the audience who feels the need to raise their hand and say, but what about unlocking my smartphone with my face? And I'm like, do it, knock yourself out. If that is what you want to do, like who am I to you know, get between you and your device? And the reason is because that is your face and your phone. And your facial biometric never leaves that phone and it's hashed, which means it's encrypted. Nobody's going to take it. They're not going to reverse engineer it. You're not hurting anybody else by what you're doing with your phone when you unlock it with your face. So go for it. You're in a nice, like closed loop relationship between you and your phone. Lawmakers don't need to worry about it. Manufacturers don't need to worry about it. Users don't need to worry about it. We can all relax. By contrast, Looking at live facial recognition technology, which is what police use to identify a person in a crowd, far more controversial because now you're tracking people at a political protest. As you know, and as I know, in the United States, that's protected under the Bill of Rights. We have different ways of protecting it here in the United Kingdom and indeed in many liberal democracies. So if you are in an authoritarian regime, you're like less relaxed or more relaxed about this one. But if you're in a liberal democracy, you want people to be able to protest and exercise their freedom of assembly, their freedom of expression. And we know, unfortunately, that these these principles are already highly contested and we have to protect and defend them. But we also know that the police do not always use technology ethically. So we have to be on on our P's and Q's with that one. And there's a few others like using facial recognition. It's actually called classification. And I give you the whole guide so that you can talk with authority on the different kinds of facial recognition, but using it to, for instance, analyze through somebody's face, whether or not they are gay, what their political affiliation is. This is highly contested. Uh, The majority of scientists whose research I looked at all dismiss this as absolute bunk. You can't just look at somebody's face and guess their, their politics or their sexuality or indeed anything else about them. Um, it would literally just be guessing. Yet there are scientists who do this and they are from very good universities and they publish in peer-reviewed journals and then newspapers you know, publish it kind of uncritically and out it goes. That is you know, highly unethical and most likely needs to be the subject of consideration and discussion by lawmakers and regulators. So you know, to sum up, if you want to use facial verification technology with your own phone, go for it. You want to use it to like check people out at political protests in a liberal democracy, not, not okay necessarily, no, unless there's a threat of you know, a terrorist attack, in which case maybe you want to make that argument, but the police are likely going to do that every time, right? So like here in the United Kingdom, we're having a real problem with the police wanting to clamp down on political protests. So they would just simply declare that any 
political protest is a terrorist risk. So like even then, we just have to ask ourselves, can we regulate and use this technology safely ever? And if we can't, then we just moratorium, just put a moratorium on it. If you don't want to ban it outright, just pause it until we can. So there you go. Page 154, <laughs> if you need to cheat. <laughs> that was for I, the students. <laughs> I read this uh, terrible story on the BBC last week about the idea of lie detection systems going high tech. I don't, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, they had you know, kind of uncovered this you know, system that essentially tries to detect uh, liars using uh, electrodes attached to people's faces. Um, and the article ends with this idea that uh, perhaps eventually that science will lead to the ability to spot a liar uh, mm. from, from a distance. You know, perhaps that would, could be combined with fa- facial recognition technology. I read that type of thing and I, you know, think about the framework you're applying and the, the degree of risk. And, you know, it just strikes me we're, we're headed to compounding disasters when it comes to this stuff. Yeah. I mean, we've seen this evolution in policing and intelligence work. There's been discussions of this in the past of, you know, how does somebody's pupil dilation respond under stress or their heartbeat? Um, you know, even, even the use of torture and interrogation, right, is, is like a highly contested thing because there are like supposedly physical tells with a lot of that stuff. Except that, of course, there's a complete counter argument to all of this, which is if you're interrogating somebody and worried about whether or not they're lying under interrogation, they may just be stressed because they're under interrogation or you haven't allowed them access to a lawyer. They're just scared. Um, they might say any old thing because they're panicking or freaking out or trying to protect someone else. So, you know, but you're thinking, ah, oh, but your pupil dilated by one millimeter, you're obviously guilty. You know, that's so risky. And if anything, it's kind of a sign of um, faulty police intelligence work because it would show that you have nothing else to base your case on except for some biomarkers that are highly questionable. So it's weird that we go down this path, but it's, it's like a zombie idea. You know, it just refuses to die no matter how many times people kill it. It's, I don't know why. People want simple solutions to complicated problems. So you've written a book, which presumably you hope people will read and maybe make different decisions about the types of technologies they build or how they apply those technologies in a variety of different circumstances. But stepping back from that and looking at the world as it is, are you optimistic that we can get a hold of our ethical uh, approach to technology, that we can uh, recognize that technology is not neutral and, you know, as a species uh, operate in with that mind, or uh, do you suspect that things will go the other way? I weirdly became an optimist through writing the book. I would say I started it out in a fairly dark place <laughs> in terms of thinking about technology, just because I had been working in it for a really long time with a lot of really bright people. And yet I was seeing I was seeing some lack of critical thinking happening in the wider sector. And, you know, we've paid a very high price for that lack of critical thinking um, in terms of election interference and data theft. You know, the cybersecurity world, I think, has a lot of challenges. And there's obviously you know, climate change coming down the barrel where you just think, you know, we're, we're not even thinking about the right things right now. Um, while writing this book, I was on a talk during the pandemic with a bunch of people who are really bright and fun, who were talking about using facial recognition technology to solve a really important problem, which was deciding who to serve first in a bar. 
So, you know, it's a big, big deal. <laughs> and I was like, there is a pandemic. Things are on fire in the Arctic. Like, this is not our biggest problem. So it was pretty difficult, but, you know, it's very easy to be negative. Um, and I also think that's, it gets you lots of headlines and press, but it's not a very fun way to live. Um, I, I think that we actually are in a better place than we were when I started writing the book a few years ago. And we're definitely in a better place than when I started in technology in 2000. So I cannot help but be an optimist because my own personal track record is that people are talking about something that they never used to really talk about outside of some very specialist areas. I know there are many people who were working in science and technology studies or digital humanities and in, in academia, proper researchers, but I don't know how much they're excellent work, which has been around for decades, if not longer, um, has sort of permeated boardrooms and been discussed on the floor of the House of Commons or Congress the way that it is now, or is on the front page of newspapers. I mean, technology ethics stories are on the front page of UK newspapers all the time, like on a weekly basis, if not daily, it's amazing. So I'm pretty optimistic now. I also am very inspired by a lot of the people I see working in this space and the questions that younger people are demanding be answered, I think is a really wonderful generational challenge. And I think, you know, we are all sharing this planet. We're sharing this pandemic experience, albeit from very different perspectives. We're all aware of climate change as a problem we need to work on. I just think that awareness is the first step. And then, you know, effective teamwork is going to be next. So I don't, I don't want to sugarcoat it, but I'm just saying I've, I've already seen some pretty grim things in my time. And at least now we're talking about them and there's lots of books out. Mine is just one of many on this topic. Um, so yeah, I'm weirdly optimistic. I was not expecting to be, but that's, that's pandemic logic for you. I appreciate that. And on a, a shared note of optimism, I will say my students are, I think, ever more aware of these issues and concerns. And a lot of this uh, thinking has permeated the atmosphere of conversations around technology far more substantially than it had even just a few years ago. And so, you know, like you, I remain an optimist. I think that's why I keep doing what I do. Let me just ask you a last question. Any, any shout outs in terms of your influences in this book uh, or in your thinking more generally? Oh my gosh. Uh, so there's like an Oscar speech worthy acknowledgement section, which I will not inflict on your good listeners, but there's a lot of people I had to thank in this book. And I would say, you know, for the pandemic health chapter, those digital health tools that we developed here in the UK, I was really lucky that a number of doctors took time to speak to me and public health officials who, you know, they have been working absolute insane hours flat out separated from their families, and they still made time to talk to me, um, professors of immunology and behavioral science, leaders of biometric companies who were working on different aspects of these digital health tools took time out. That generosity, again, that's what I mean by like the team spirit. I feel like everybody got involved. So, you know, those doctors are huge and they're, they're in my acknowledgement section. I'm also very grateful in the facial recognition chapter to the police which I know must sound potentially an odd thing to say, but you know the police in the United Kingdom have had their budgets cut substantially since the Tory party came into power in 2010. So that's 12 years ago now. And these police officers, particularly here in London, are protecting a world capital. They, you know, it's a terrorist target and has been since I've lived here since 1998 with many successful attacks. 
and doubtless more that they've had to stop. And they've got so many different problems and pressures and they're doing it with fewer and fewer resources. So I have a lot of sympathy for these officers that they are going to be experimenting with technologies and wanting to use tech to frankly make up for the gap that they have had in terms of manpower and other resources. So for them to come on radio and you know talk and debate with a researcher and give their time and explain their point of view, I couldn't have done this book without them. Like they gave a really important data point that meant I wasn't just talking to academics or other researchers or people in companies. I was talking to people who are really also trying to use this to keep you know, my city safe um, and to acknowledge the complexity of that and lawmakers as well. The UK is an amazing country in that way. I've found at least I've been very lucky as a researcher. If you write to somebody and say, I'm working on this, it's a serious project. Can you help? Nine times out of 10, you know, they're saying, you know, when do you want to have a chat? So I've talked to, you know, you'll, as you'll see when you read the book, it's like shocking to me writing a book is this solitary exercise. And yet at the same time, in this case, the amount of people that I talked to and relied on was massive, including, you know, journalists who were working with me on stories or who would talk to me on background about, about things. I felt like we were trying to solve a problem together a lot. And, you know, we haven't solved the problem. <laughs> Technology feels like the wicked problem that will never be solved, but it was very meaningful to me to feel that I wasn't on my own. So many people were willing to share their two cents and to help out. It was incredible. Well, perhaps there are a few others who will read this book and, and join you on that quest. Um, I, I recommend the book and uh, I hope perhaps we'll, we'll talk about these issues again. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guest. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.